Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover parts five through eight of Low Men in Yellow Coats, found in Hearts in Atlantis. Let's start the show! As his mother prepares for a trip with her boss out of town, Bobby Garfield continues to see potential signs of the low men looking for Ted Brodigan. Elizabeth decides to let Ted watch Bobby while she goes on her trip. Ted takes Bobby to a movie, Village of the Damned, and down there, a part of town Bobby has never been to before, where there's a pool hall. There, while Ted makes a bet on a prize fight, Bobby learns something about his father. On the way home, Ted and Bobby have a close encounter with the low men, and Bobby learns that Ted will be leaving soon. Bobby confesses everything to Carol, after which they are both picked on by some Catholic school kids before being saved by Rianda. Ted wins his bet, and Bobby has a strange dream. Greetings, constant listeners. Want to support the show? Check out our Patreon page to learn how you can access exclusive content. We've set up three patron levels, Apprentice, Gunslinger, and Cotet. Each level provides rewards as a thank you from us to you. Find out more information at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Thanks again for being a loyal listener. Yeah, there was a lot of plot in this section of the book, Sean. Uh, yeah, we went from a, the first section of this book that we covered in the last episode, which was really about setting the mood, and we talked a lot about the feelings that King was bringing out, the nostalgia, the childhood, the relationships between children and adults, and here we're just sort of rushing right through, all the way through plot stuff, just bam, 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 and there's plot everywhere we turn. Having set that groundwork in the in the first section, we're we're off and running here. Yeah, I mean it's great plot. It's a wonderful story, but it's almost all just story. Yeah. So we're really getting the contours of the story in this section. We we can see where it's heading. There's all sorts of different conflicts between the low men and Ted, Bobby and his mother, his mother and her boss. There's just a lot going on, and we could start to get a sense of where I think the story might be heading. I'm sure there's still going to be a few surprises along the way, but um, we, we know what we're up against here. And we get really sort of an apology I have for our listeners. I We get a, a fairly clear explanation of Ted's powers, and I had been making a little bit of an assumption or a guess that maybe Bobby had some latent psychic powers within him that he was able to use. But we get a fairly clear sense that it's due to the fact, as you had surmised, that when Ted touches Bobby or others, some of that psychic energy that he has and his power sort of gloms onto to Bobby and he's able to use that. And we, we get that there. So to be fair to your thought, we know that Ted is kind of an amplifier to psychic ability. And we don't know that you can start with zero and amplify zero, right? Like maybe there needs to be some tiny, tiny bit of psychic power. And I like to think that King sort of imbues 
most of his main characters with something special about them, mm. even if it's just an appreciation for life or something like that. It wouldn't be too unusual for King to basically give Bobby, the central character of the story, a little bit of the same power that that Jake had, or a little bit of the same power that Danny Torrance has to uh, apparently a, a much larger degree in The Shining, right? It's not really on the page, or at least it hasn't come up yet in the story, but maybe maybe there's just enough of that power in Bobby that Ted's effect or Ted's amplification is why that it's able to rub off. Well, I appreciate the defense there, Jay. All right. It makes me look like less of an idiot, which I always appreciate looking like less of an idiot. <laughs> but Ted's pretty convinced that if he touches Bobby, that more of it's going to rub off. And Ted doesn't want that to happen because he fears, I believe, that the low men will be much more able to track down Bobby at that point, And therefore, Ted, he makes a point of not touching Bobby and not letting Bobby hug him or touch him so that that won't happen. And I also think that Ted is afraid that he could make Bobby more valuable himself to the low men. Mm. If somebody else is around Ted who has Ted's powers or something approximating his powers, then Bobby becomes a target himself. He's not just somebody near Ted. He's somebody that they want to capture. And Ted doesn't want that to happen. Yep. I suspect Ted doesn't really like the fact that he has this power. At least not anymore. Yeah, I even in book seven, we get that, right? Like he very much sees it as a curse. Yeah. Even early on when he tells his story to the quartet, how much he doesn't know what to do with it. He wants to do the right thing, but it's just so very hard and it, it does become more of a curse than a blessing for him. Right. So if you can avoid sharing that hardship uh, with somebody that you care about, you'd probably work pretty hard to do so. Yeah. I mean, the plot's pretty straightforward, so we're not going to get into deep into it here. But one of the themes that I think we wanted to explore was this idea of down there. And this is a place in town that Bobby has had no reason to go to and no reason to to go. His mother hasn't even necessarily forbid him. It's just not even thought of that there would be a reason to go down there, which is seems to be a downtown area or a a place off the beaten tracks for the rest of it. And it nicely reflects the first section of the book when Bobby, we get a good sense of Bobby's neighborhood and how circumscribed it is. Like he names all the streets and, you know, when Ted hires him to look for signs of the low men, he's got a, a very clear route that he goes around, sort of here's the block and he knows everyone on that block and he knows what streets there are and what cars to see, et cetera. And the only time he sort of expands beyond that is if he goes to the park or the supermarket or the library, but that's basically it. Everything else is sort of right in that neighborhood. So for him to go to this new area of town is a is like a revelation for Bobby. And it is, in fact, the wrong side of the track, almost literally here. Yeah, I really love this idea of down there. And I love the way that Ted explains it to Bobby by quoting David Goodis, where he says, every city has a neighborhood like this one where you can buy sex or marijuana or a parrot that talks dirty, where the men sit talking on stoops like those men across the street, where the women always seem to be yelling for their kids to come in unless they want a whipping, 
and where the wine always comes in a paper sack. <laughs> like it almost makes down there a romantic place. Yep. And it's the reality of down there, the the stark contrast between this neighborhood and the place where Bobby lives and the Bobby knows. It's anything but romantic. I don't know. Maybe there is a, a little bit of romance there. The fact that everybody only has a first name and this is where you go to bet on prize fights and play pool with your buddies. Yep. There's something that you can find in a neighborhood like this that you would never find in the uptight suburb where Bobby lives. And it's maybe not always a, a great thing, but uh, it's also part of humanity and society. So it, it's less the Norman Rockwell painting and more of a. Uh... I, I don't even know what type of painting that would be, but yeah, th this instead of this picture perfect New England town that we get this sense of, it's it's very different. And unfortunately, the reason that Ted wants to take the trip there is so that he can make this prize bet, so that he can make enough money, so that he can scamper out of town because he knows that the low men are closing in on him, and he reveals that, yeah, I know you've been holding out on me, Bobby, and. Mm -hmm. I, I can sense that the danger's coming, and I understand why you haven't been telling me things, but it's real, and I, I need the money to get out of here. And the only way I can get a bunch of money really quick is to make this this prize fight bet. But that leads to all sorts of other sort of interesting revelations, right? I mean, this is where Bobby gets to see an entirely different side of his family life. Like, people recognize him and yeah, immediately say, oh, I know who I knew your father. And they didn't know his father like they were good friends, but he was somebody who put in an appearance down there and had reasons for being down there. Bobby gets this whole new perspective on he's not just a man that his mother disparages for leaving them with a bunch of bills and not giving them any f future. And, and he sees this new perspective of how people, oh, yeah, he was a good guy and he did this and he did that. He'd never buy a drunk a drink and he'd give you the shirt off his back, right? Bobby is simultaneously learning that not all adults know all the answers and not all adults are good people. And maybe one of those adults who isn't a good person is his mother. And the only version of his father that he's ever had has been what his mother says about it. And it's always been pretty critical. To say the least. So it's really great that Bobby gets to meet somebody who has nothing against his father. In fact, seemed to genuinely like him. Yeah. For the surface level awareness that Alana Files had of Bobby's father, it was all like a positive experience and a positive opinion. And I think it's really important for Bobby to know that his father is more than just his mother's opinion of him. And he, like every other person, could be much more complex than a single person's viewpoint. And that there is a lot more to his father that Bobby might have known for himself had he not died when he did. And it's so valuable to Bobby to learn these things about his father through somebody besides his mother. Yeah. Lana Files is the only person that Bobby has ever met besides his own mother who knew his father, except, I guess. Actually, that's not true. His father used to work for the same real estate company that his mother now works for. 
So I guess he could have learned something about his father from Mr. Biderman. But Mr. Biderman is portrayed as being a total piece of garbage person. So yeah, don't think Bobby places any value in anything he might have to say. No, he's not somebody who's going to sit down with, with Bobby and say, hey, let's talk about your father. He does not seem the type anyways. Mm-hmm. So I know I tend to be more defensive of Bobby's mother than you. But I wonder if part of the reason that Elizabeth Garfield has maybe such a hard time with Bobby is because we learn in this section that Bobby resembles his father to a great degree. Yeah. Enough that somebody who had never met Bobby before and who wouldn't have seen Bobby's father for, what, at least five years, recognizes him right away and is able to say, oh, you must be. Randall Garfield's son. And Mm -hmm. for a mother, you know, a widow to look at her son and realize how much he looks like her dead husband and the feelings that she has towards her dead husband, which seem unresolved in a lot of ways, I could see how she might be able to project them onto the son. And that might give another reason as to why she treats Bobby like she does. Not to say that that's right. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that adds another piece of complexity to Elizabeth, I think. Yeah. For sure. And I could easily see that as being a big part of it. If every time she looks at her son, she thinks of her husband, and that makes her angry because she hates her husband, dead or not, it's kind of hard to keep a smile on your face and a friendly attitude towards somebody who pisses you off every time you look at him. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's not Bobby's fault, but that's how she feels when when she thinks of her of her husband, right? Yep. So So what else is happening down there? Like why do we have this It's not an interlude because it's integral to the plot, although the piece with Bobby's father isn't necessarily plot related, it just gives us another sort of look into their life, but what else is Bobby learning down there and why, I mean, other than the reason that Ted needs to get out of town quick and he can't leave Bobby at home, why did why do you think Ted brings Bobby with him? Because, he, you know, it was the 60s. You theoretically could have left an 11-year-old at home and not, yeah. and not worried. <laughs> In fact, it might have even been safer for him to be left at home than to bring him a pool hall where kids are obviously not wanted. Right. Yeah, well, as you said earlier, this was a revelation for Bobby. And- Perhaps Ted had an, that ulterior motive that he sees the constrained and confined life that Bobby has lived thus far. And, and albeit he's an 11 year old boy, so it's not like he's a world traveler and, you know, goes, ventures far and wide on his own anyway. But I think it's really easy to see that Bobby's world is confined to just a few blocks, like the path between his front door and his school the library, and the movie theater. That's kind of it. Yep. Ted uh, values that because Bobby's very, very familiar with the surroundings and therefore can help him spot unusual things. But he also maybe feels that Bobby would benefit from broadening those horizons. And one way to do that is recommend some books to read, right? Which Ted does over and over again. That's one of the best things that Ted could have done for Bobby Hmm. in terms of broadening his horizons. But another way is to take him to 
take him to down there, right? Meet the kind of people who he would never meet in his own neighborhood and learn that, that there are also good people and nice people there too. That just because you're in this bad neighborhood where crimes apparently happen, there's still just as many good people and bad people there just uh, just like in the suburbs and it's not any better or worse and i think to just meet somebody like alana and to just see like the kid who is playing the pinball machine yep. right and he just talks to bobby for a second as he walks by but it's it's a really positive interaction like he's bobby doesn't feel threatened he's a an older boy like the saint gabe's boys who later terrorize him and and carol but he, but this guy from down there, this kid from down there, he, who proclaims to be in a gang, he can't wear his colors inside the pool hall and all that stuff. He thinks Bobby's cool. Right. So it's like, huh, there are actually people who aren't jerks, who aren't mean just for the sake of meanness. And, and they are here. They're in the down there part of town. And that's kind of where I see Bobby benefiting from this. I think that it's wonderful to broaden your horizons for anybody and to just learn that there are different ways of life, different ways of living and different kinds of people who are not necessarily bad or good, but different. I think that's always to your benefit. And so Bobby's growing a lot in just this one trip to another part of town. Yeah. King makes a point of pointing out the different nationalities and religions and types of people that are down there. So it's pretty obvious that Bobby's growing up in a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, your typical waspy New England town and suburb. Mm -hmm. His mother isn't excited about the upcoming election of, of Kennedy becoming president because Kennedy is Irish and therefore a hothead. You don't get the sense that Bobby has had much exposure to any other types of people other than himself. Even when he's protected from the St. Gabe's boys by uh, her mother's older friend, right? She calls him Shanty Irish. And then they make a point of when they're down there, Bobby sees Catholics because when he looks into Alana's room off the pool hall, he can see a cross in there and he's sort of like, wow, look at that. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the boys in the pool hall is a Latino. And the guy in the back is Italian who knows a little bit about this. And so it's just this sort of overwhelming, wow, there's a lot of different people. And like you said, they're not bad people. They're just different people. Although you would get the sense that his mother would say, those are bad people because they're not, yeah. they're not like us. They're different. And to your point, Ted's broadening his mind and opening it up and saying, hey, Catholics, Italians, Latinos, whatever, they're shanty Irish even. They're just like us. They're humans. And you got some good, some bad, and all of them. So one of the potentially bad people seems to be Mr. Biderman. Potentially bad, you say? Potentially bad. Well, when we meet Mr. Biderman for the first time, he is there to pick up Liz at her house before this trip that she is very concerned about. She can't get the right clothes, and she's got this nervous energy that that Bobby's picked picked up on. And Mr. Biderman shows up and he's your typical, hey, how's it going, sport? How's that swing going? And not listening to the kid and just sort of not paying attention to him. And Bobby gets a bad feeling about him from the get-go 
Mm-hmm. And Liz has a bad feeling, and it doesn't help that the two guys in the back seat are all ooga ooga aga aga and making yeah wink wink nudge nudge. Yeah, it it seems like a very not great situation for Liz to be in, and Bobby doesn't exactly know why, because again, he's only eleven years old, as we talked about last episode. There's things that he doesn't quite understand, and he's confused by. He has some sense of things, but he he can't pick up on all those cues yet. He just knows something doesn't feel right. And even Ted has picked up on it and realizes that something not great is happening. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't want to worry Bobby too much, but on the other hand, he wants Bobby to be sure he's aware of it. And this all comes to a head in the dream sequence that Bobby has towards the end of the section, which is a very graphic dream that sort of piles on the Lord of the Flies imagery and a lot of the story that that Bobby took away from that, as well as what he thinks may or may not be happening with his mother and Mr. Biderman. And it's really graphic in the most graphic ways that you can imagine. Yeah. And I think King is working his authorial magic here. Um, by painting this truly disturbing scene, but also doing it in such a way that it's very craftily done. He has a young boy who has recently discovered the joy of a good story through reading Lord of the Flies, and it's something that has stuck with him in a way that he's, he thinks about Lord of the Flies often now, and he often associates elements of the story with his experiences and things happening in his life. So when he has this dream, King does takes that to the like one step further and he has Bobby use Lord of the Flies as a foundation and structure to this dream, but then his instinctive or almost supernatural ability to kind of figure out or or guess what his mother might be going through is overlaid on top of that. So King does this like very crafty thing where he he combines Bobby's dread for his mother, his worry for his mother, his concern, and puts it in a structure that aligns with Lord of the Flies and uses that to paint a very, very scary picture. Mm. And it's horror, but it's also tragedy. And it's it's just suffering to the point of no matter how much you might resent Liz Garfield, like I might for the things that she does in general and the way she treats her son. I still feel very defensive for her and wish that nothing like this is happening to her. Right. Because this is absolutely awful. The men in the dream that Bobby is envisioning and the things that they're doing, these are the worst types of people. And to that they would do anything that would resemble this is is unacceptable. And I had this kind of like fan fiction fantasy of Bobby using all of his connections from the people he met down there and arranging to have Biderman beaten to the inch of his life. You know, it's like, heard what you did to my ma, see? And <laughs> this is what you get, see? I enjoy chewing your food without teeth, you know, kind of thing. And Right. And Ted is totally aware of it. He tells Bobby, Mr. Biderman is not a nice man. Your mother knows it, but she also knows that sometimes we have to go along with people who are not nice. Go along to get along, she thinks, and she has done this. She's done things over the last year that she's not proud of, but she has been careful, 
In some ways, she has needed to be as careful as I have. And whether I like her or not, I admire her for that. And then Bobby's trying to make sense of what that means Mm -hmm. and says, but what has she done? Like, why, why is she at this real estate conference? And Ted sort of takes, I don't know, the easy way out. I don't know. She didn't know. Or perhaps she has covered over what she knows and what she fears with what she hopes. And obviously, if Bobby's dream is to be believed, it's not what she hopes at all. Like Maybe in her mind, she was thinking perhaps this could be a potentially, I don't even think she thinks it's a romantic getaway, but a a chance to, to get into the real estate business or show that she's got an opportunity instead it becomes a, a an obvious rape if what Bobby's dream is actually transpired and how Bobby even understands rape is unclear mm-hmm. based on what we know about Bobby but whether that's him picking up some psychic energy of it if he's reading a little bit of Ted's mind along the way or if there's enough of the Lord of the Flies imagery that he's just sort of put all these things on top of each other it's it's unclear but it's very disturbing yeah, I mean, I was wondering something along those lines. Like, is this simply King using the magic of dreams when Bobby combines the Lord of the Flies imagery with what he just has this vague worry about his mother? And this is what his his dream mind comes up with. And of course, it's done in a way that induces some pretty strong feelings in us, the reader. But it could also be some sort of psychic powers, right? I mean, this is a story about a man who has psychic powers. He can read minds and and also help others to read minds. So this is not outside the possibility of what's going on. Is Ted just always broadcasting around him? Like when we learn about how he works or does his his thing at Algo Ciento to help the other breakers, he's not standing around like laying hands on people and stuff like that. He's just sort of near in them. their presence. Yeah. And maybe that's all it really takes. He it, maybe the direct physical contact is sort of an, an amplified way. It's, you know, like landline versus cellular kind of thing, but it's still the signal's still getting broadcast. So maybe whenever Ted's around, everybody's a little bit psychic. Yep. Combine the Ted's effect and Bobby's worry and Bobby's obsession with Lord of the Flies. Not hard to get to the conclusion of this dream, the horrifying Bobby. And the other piece of the dream that's interesting and that's going to lead us into our next section, the Dark Tower Thinnies. Is the fact that the Dark Tower is overlaid on top of this. Right. That in Bobby's dreams, there are, there are visions of the Dark Tower. And we'll get to that in, in a second. And we wonder, is this possibly a way of different realities that he's seeing is it part of the same reality but the there's a thinny that allows him to see into into this i mean we know that how magic works in the dark tower universe that there that could be part of it the, the other piece is when bobby and ted are having their talk about his mother etc that's right around the same time when the low men start to do their search and it seems as if the low men have different powers than what we might be used to yeah they seem to be not necessarily broadcasting, but searching and probing the minds of the people around them. And Ted warns Bobby to to put up a wall in his mind and not think about things so that they, they're not aware of his presence. And I never got that sense in the book that that's how the low men work, but perhaps these are 
different low men or a different type of low men? What are your thoughts on that, Jay? I wondered the exact same thing. Uh, we never got the sense that the low men in the Dark Tower books, when we really spent some time around them, and Ted explained who they were and how their society works and their religious aspirations and all that stuff. I don't remember him ever saying anything about them having psychic powers or the ability to mentally track their quarry. I never got the the sense that they had any psychic powers, but here when they're tracking Ted, suddenly they are a bit, uh, able to, you know, scratch at the back of your eyes, right? Like they, they make your eyes itch and Ugh. You know, the, the zone outs are Ted putting up that mental wall and Bobby needs to do the same thing, but they can't be a different kind of low man, right? Uh, you wouldn't think. It's it's the canned toy, right? Like, yep, they are exactly the same beings that we meet in book seven of the Dark Tower. I don't know. They seem much more formidable. They seem much more capable here than they ever are represented in the Dark Tower which is kind of interesting because King wrote this before he wrote books six and seven. Unless he wanted to diminish them uh, by retconning them to be lesser beings uh, in the Dark Tower books, I don't understand why he would do that. Yeah. To block his mind from the low men, Bobby's thoughts start to go to Bridget Bardot and the poster he saw where she showed a lot of leg and mm -hmm. she's only wearing a towel coming out of the shower. And so sort of this inkling of sex in his mind around this. And then Bridget Bardot transforms into his girlfriend, Carol, which isn't quite what he was expecting. But what's interesting about that, that is a direct connection to the Dark Tower, is he starts hearing the platter song that we've been talking about before. Mm -hmm. And then as he's thinking about that song and he's thinking about Carol, he thinks other worlds than this, which is getting really close to that direct connection with the Dark Tower. And King is making explicit what th these connections and, and Bobby's sort of getting drawn into this Dark Tower world. Right. Without ever really knowing or understanding what's going on. Do you think that other worlds than this versus other worlds than these is really a distinction? No, not really much of a distinction. I mean, if we want to connect this back to the idea of down there, it's almost that Bobby's realizing that there is more to the world than what he originally thought. Mm -hmm. For Roland and Jake and Eddie and Susanna, it becomes a lot more relevant, right? The other worlds than this is, sure. hell, there, there are actually separate worlds and we're going to go through doors to jump in and out of them. For Bobby, it's being introduced to other worlds outside of his circumscribed neighborhood, but also other worlds then potentially, you know, I think it's interesting that it's connected to the movie theaters, which again, movie theaters open up doors to other worlds. Mm -hmm. His connection with books, which opens up connections to other worlds than this. For him, he sees other worlds than this as there's his world and there's these other worlds that are out there that are not physically other worlds in his mind yet. They're something different than what he's used to. Beyond his his sphere of awareness, right? Yes. And and it's books, it's movies, and it's other people and other neighborhoods. He's not aware of the whole different dimensions quite yet. And whether he will be or not, we don't we know that, but he doesn't. So mm -hmm. so we've been talking about it for a while. Should we officially transition to the Dark Tower Thinnies section of our show? 
So what other dark tower thinnies did you notice in this section, Jay? Well, I think there's another really obvious one when uh, Ted refers to Irving Kleindienst as a Ka Mai. Ah. He's speaking the whatever the Ka related high speechish type of Roland talk. I, I don't know. Whose language is that? What language is that? I don't know. It, it's enough that it gets thrown around enough in uh in Midworld and Endworld that he's picked it up during his time in Algol Siental before his latest escape, correct? Yeah, because he like says things to Roland like, you know, steak teat, and we're like, uh <laughs> <laughs> now you're befouling our world with it, Ted. <laughs> Terrific. Later on, it's Bobby who starts to zone out and he's specifically zoning out when Ted is talking about Euripides and Greek tragedy and all of that. He's talking about plays by Shakespeare and poems by Poe and novels by a guy named Theodore Dreiser. And these are, of course, all writers who have tragedy and fate and realism that are working up towards a final moment in their head, which, of course, comes up with, with an idea. And Bobby's sort of half listening, half not. And then Ted says, the idea of fate as a force which can't be escaped seems to start with the Greeks. There was a playwright named Euripides who, call, Bobby said. And Bobby is referring to the fact that he wants him to call to find out what happened in the fight. But I find it interesting, and maybe this is a stretch on my part, that Ted is actually talking about fate or ka. Mm -hmm. And Bobby says, call, the first little bit of that word, the first sound there is call, call, call. Maybe it's a stretch, but King's pretty smart. What do you think? There's a playwright named Euripides who call. I'll allow it, but my eyes are very narrowly squinted right now. Oh, come on. I thought it was pretty brilliant. <laughs> I saw that and immediately highlighted it and said, oh, look at that. But yeah, he's trying to explain this all to Bobby. And unfortunately, not only do I think he's trying to explain Ka and fate, to Bobby, but I think King, and again, I haven't read forward yet. I don't know, spoiler wise, but we do know that Ted does not stay in this Connecticut town for the rest of his life, that he eventually makes it back to to Midworld, but mm -hmm. that there is going to be a tragedy that happens later on in this story that we're building up towards, and that there is fate we're at work here and there's no escaping it. Yep. Uh another thinny is um you hinted at it earlier, but in Bobby's dream, it ends with a spinning top that Bobby somehow intuits within the dream that the top is actually a tower, a still spindle upon which all of existence moved and spun. I mean, it's right there. I mean, Bobby is basically dreaming about the dark tower. He's having a dark tower moment in the way that Roland had when he was sucked into the pink wizard's glass the way that eddie did when he saw the visions in the campfire bobby is having a dark tower moment here when he's dreaming about his mother being attacked by her co-workers on a business trip so we know that there's probably a reason why the dark tower isn't called the happy tower <laughs> or the wonderful joy tower or the tower of joy mm. <laughs> it's the dark tower because it's not always about pleasant things. In fact, it often isn't. So when both Eddie and Roland see the tower for the first time in their dream situations, they become dark tower junkies. Mm. 
and their lives are immediately changed or not maybe not quite immediately but their their lives are inextricably changed and it makes me wonder if this is a point in which Bobby's life is going to change and uh, on this twist of, of seeing the dark tower even if he doesn't quite comprehend what it is yet and I guess the only way we will find out is if is to read further but it does make me wonder what fate dark to- the dark tower has it for him in the future if any it's moderately fascinating yes and i just love the way that that dream ends so he thinks he sees you know he sees a dark tower and then he wakes up and when he opened his eyes his bedroom was full of sunshine summer sunshine on a thursday morning in the last june of the eisenhower presidency it's king bringing us back to the world that he set up in the last section right mm-hmm. it's just your normal everyday 60s neighborhood and quite possibly uh knowing the little bit i know about what this book is going to be about quite possibly some of the last i don't want to say happy days in in u.s history but like this is like a time that people look back on i mean this is the hey it's eisenhower everything's good and i like ike and america's rolling along in the post-war years and the future is bright and optimistic Mm -hmm. and we know that that's not true right right around the corner is Cuban Missile Crisis and the Kennedy assassination in Vietnam and Nixon and Watergate. But like right here at this moment in time, it's sort of that last gasp of for a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant living in the United States, good times. Right. And as kind of represented by a still relatively innocent 11-year-old boy. Yes, exactly. So he is as innocent as the country appears to be at that moment. Yes. Well, on that bright and optimistic note, it's time for fun stuff, Jay. All right, fun stuff. I'm going to start off with Ted having a very progressive view for the times that people with mental illness aren't funny and shouldn't be made fun of. Maybe that's because of his relationship with Shimi and other people in Agul Siento, but I don't think that at the 50s, people were quite as enlightened as Ted is at the moment. I think that even today, people are (laughs) as enlightened as Ted. But you make a fine point. I really love how Mrs. O'Hara's dog, the next door neighbor whose dog never stops barking, was always barking as if denying all human aspirations. Ah. I love that. It's just like the, the bark is a bark, but it's also like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and I was also kind of taken aback that King really seems to have a problem with creamy white sauces. Like he makes comments in book two of the Dark Tower. Roland hates mayonnaise because it looks like jizz. Now King through the characters here in the story is like crapping all over tzatziki sauce on a on a gyro. So like mayonnaise and tzatziki sauce are delicious sauces. They make the sandwich even better. But I don't know. King, maybe King's got a little bit of a problem there. Although to be fair, he he does say that Bobby thinks that the gyro is the best sandwich that he has ever eaten. So it's not all bad. Yes. Yeah. Once he tastes it, then he's like, ah, now I understand. Opening up uh, Bobby's eyes to Greek food. Yeah. Those Greeks were onto something besides Euripides and fate. Now he might be anti-creamy white sauces, but he does have Ted make a casserole with horseradish sauce, and horseradish sauce is often white, yes? Yeah. Of course, that horseradish sauce leads to a, a farting scene worthy of blazing saddles. <laughs> <laughs> I 
as Ted and uh, Bobby try to one up each other and we get a little bit of levity there. Fun note, Jade, the day we're recording this is the 45th anniversary of the release of Blazing Saddles in theater. So I thought that ah. thought that, that was appropriate. Very special day. I, I, I need to mark my calendar. I'm not saying that sarcastically. No. <laughs> the movie's awesome. The movie is awesome. We see in this section the first lost pet poster. Mm. It's for a dog that goes by the name of Phil. And the, the dog's name isn't important, but... The dog's breed is a Welsh corgi, and I thought, ah, I see what you're doing there, King. Yes, King and his corgis. As a working mother, Liz Garfield probably doesn't get to watch soap operas that often, and she is very dismissive of them, calling them "Oh John, Oh Martha" shows, which I just thought was yeah, fantastic. Like oh John, <laughs> Oh Martha. When Bobby's in the pool hall, Alana offers him one of the free keychains that's there. And Bobby's not sure if he should take it or not, because if he gets caught, Liz is going to wonder where he got it, and it's going to cause problems. And as he's considering it one way or the other, she says, don't turn down for free in this world, kid. There isn't much of it going around. And my my brother has the same sentiment, except he he has condensed it. His, his favorite line is, free stuff is good stuff. Mm-hmm. Can't go wrong there. On their way back from the pool hall, they're taking a taxi, and the cab drivers listening to a Yankees game when Bobby and Ted wake up from their blocking of the low men from their days. The cab driver says, goddamn engines, they ruined them when they ask if the Yankees won or not. And whoa! first I was interested because I'm an Indians. I grew up in Cleveland, so I'm an Indians fan. But the word ruined there is interesting, isn't it? It sure is. It's not often when you're talking about a baseball game that you say one team ruined the other or ruined them. That that part was interesting. But then also the fact that it's the Indians of all the American League teams who are playing the Yankees immediately sort of conjures up Cowboys and Indians and Wild West and Roland maybe there. So I think even in that simple five-word line, there's a lot to unpack there. Oh, yeah. King, King fit a lot into there. Even a little bit of casual racism. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. <laughs> Oh, uh, one thing that I thought was pretty cool was in Bobby's dream, Harry Doolin is carrying a baseball bat that he has sharpened at both ends. And this is a direct callback to the monogram at the beginning of the story where King says, 1960, they had a stick sharpened at both ends. Mm. That seems like more of a general or generic description of the 60s where things kind of took a turn it's exactly what we see here and and then i just like king pulling back to the library card that got introduced earlier and bobby reflects that he realized he was growing into his orange library card Mm. so already he can feel within himself how he's becoming adult and then about a dozen pages later he says having an adult library card was very neat but somehow not as neat as it had seemed at first. And so there's still that pushback of, I'm not quite ready to be an adult yet. It's not all cracked up to be. I kind of saw that as as he's learning more about life in the world and becoming a bit more of an adult himself, he's realizing that the library card all by itself isn't as big of a deal as he thought it was. Not Ah. Whereas what you said sounds like it's just like he's not ready to be an adult and therefore 
he's he wants he's not as excited to have the adult library card because that means he needs to be an adult. So I think both of those perspectives are true and and valid, but uh, I hadn't thought about it that way. In in the context that I was thinking of it was. It's shortly after Bobby realizes that Ted's leaving, mm-hmm. and that's where I think he feels like, uh, like this is what happens. Like, it's not just carefreeness, is it? Being a kid, like now that there's more things that are happening, but I could see how both of those are valid readings there. So, all right, well, we wanted to read a review that we recently got. Jay, this is from Wes Fazani in the UK. And he said, the man in black fled across the desert and Jay and Sean followed. I listened to several Dark Tower Stephen King podcasts, and this is without a doubt my favorite. Favorite with a U, by the way, so we know that this is really an English person. It's legit. It's a legit Brit. The structure of the episodes is excellent with a recap of the particular chapters they have read, followed by fun stuff where the guys make observations regarding the chapter and the things that tickled them. That's what we just did, Jay. Yeah. (laughs) I'm so tickled. The chemistry between the two hosts, Jay and Sean, is very apparent and comes across clearly as you listen. If you have read or are considering reading the Dark Tower series or just fan of all things Cy King, Stephen King, for those of you who haven't yet read the series, you need to listen to this podcast. It's that simple. Jay and Sean, you guys have created an amazing podcast. Keep up the good work and thank you for entertaining me as much as you have. Great job, guys. Well, thank you very much, Wes. We appreciate that. Um, Yes, thank you. I uh, appreciate that quite a great deal. And hopefully um, now that we're finished with the Dark Tower proper books and are continuing on into the adjacent books that you are still enjoying it. Um, I also wanted to point out just real quick, another great email from Roy Dallas on the Little Sisters of Aluria. He didn't quite love the story as much as we did, but he had a lot of valid points on what he did and did not like about it. And again, thanks for the emails, Roy. We uh, appreciate hearing those different perspectives. Yes, absolutely. Keep them coming. All right. Well, I think that is going to lead us to the end of this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com and our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes, and if you could, tell a friend about us. We'd love to to get more listeners. Next episode, join us as we finish Low Men in Yellow Coats, reading parts 9 through 12, found in Hearts of Atlantis. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. If I can work in colonoscopy jokes into a health insurance call, I think I'm doing all right.